This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. A few months ago, a parent from STEM School Highlands Ranch called school district officials. She feared the school could be the site of a shooting. That call and the district's response are under the microscope after this week's attack. CPR education reporter Jenny Brundine is reporting on this situation and joins me. Hi, Jenny. Hi, Avery. Tell me more about this phone call. Well, the parent didn't give her name. She feared her child would be expelled from the school. But the concerns were uh, grave enough, I guess you could say, that a district official wrote to the STEM school asking them to investigate the parent's concerns. And what were those concerns? Well, according to the district, the parent specifically said she was worried about a repeat of what happened at nearby schools, the Arapahoe and Columbine shootings. She said the environment there was very high pressure, and she felt that it was such that it could lead to incidents of violence at the school. And she talked about allegedly there being um, a sexual assault, there being a bomb threat at the school. She worried about drugs being used at the STEM school. So there was sort of a, a range of issues that she was worried could contribute to a violent incident. And how did the school respond? So the district asked the school to investigate, and they thought it was serious that it warranted that. About a month later, the school sued the anonymous caller for defamation, um, and and the school also wrote a letter to parents uh, calling the accusations outrageous and false, and this lawsuit, I should say, is ongoing. The school said it did conduct an investigation, and it found no evidence to support the claims. And I want to back up a little bit. Can you tell me more about this school? Yeah, this is a very highly ranked school, um, according to the school itself. Very high-achieving students. There's about 20% of the population that are gifted students. I actually reported on the school in 2015, and I was wowed by what I saw. I was incredibly struck by the number of kids who told me, you know, at their old school, they were bored. They would just do worksheets, and here they were just engaged. It's a very bottom-up style of learning where the kids are in charge of experiments. They would design their own experiments to learn the principles of science. I went back to the one here uh, um, in Highlands Ranch two years later. Give you an example. The kids were studying the origins of World War I. They built an artificial intelligent uh, head that would debate the merits of going to going into World War I or not. There were other kids that were building virtual reality uh, designs of various periods of civilizations. And so I left this, I can't tell you, I left the school feeling so inspired about the possibilities for learning. Um, they collaborate a lot. They engage with real world, world problems. But it's interesting, some of those assets are now being flagged as potential problems by some parents. And what do you mean by that? Well, the fact that it's kind of a, it's a pretty high pressure environment. It's a, it's, it's, it's a style of learning that if you don't fit with that style of learning, I can see how it could be somewhat isolating. Um, there are other students that, um, if you don't measure up or you perhaps need more direction, direct teaching uh, than the school is able to provide, it could be difficult. It caught my eye in a performance evaluation for the school's executive director. There was a note about fifth graders doing algebra and an 11-year-old in honors chemistry. And it said that's the kind of thing that's really been celebrated at STEM School Highlands Ranch. Um, that's a lot of pressure for young kids. It's important to point out that the creative nature of the school does work for many kids. And I want to go back to this anonymous parent's concern about safety. The school said that it did an investigation into the claims that they had no merit. 
What questions still remain about that? Well, after the district wrote a letter saying it was concerned about the allegations from the anonymous caller and wanted to be kept apprised about the school's investigation, then remember the school sent a letter to parents stating that the allegations were false. There's really been silence. Um, Some parents are concerned about a lack of oversight. We have no sense really of whether the district or the school board was assured that the school was a place of emotional and physical safety. And the only reason we, we have an inkling of this is parents who've been on high alert, they file open records requ- requests, they've not seen a single email relating to this, or an indication of whether the district really felt satisfied that the school was safe. And are there concerns besides what the parents raised in December? Yeah, I talked to one parent who said her daughter left the school last year. Lucretia Glenn told me her daughter was popular at the school, but she had concerns about security and ultimately decided the best thing for her was to leave She told the STEM school board about her decision to do that last year. And I understand it was really rare to have students talk in front of the school board. There's also a whole other group of parents that are concerned about how the school treats students with learning and emotional issues. There were several civil rights claims filed that those students are not getting the extra social and mental health support they needed. Um, and they want more services from the school. Now, the school's executive director has said the school does provide social workers and counselors who are trained in how to work with gifted students. And I should stress, you know, this is one segment. This is one group of parents that feels this way. And earlier this week, Colorado Matters talked with a student who is really happy at STEM. Um, He was warning for the shooting, but he told us how much he likes it there. Indeed, there are certainly parents and students who still are really happy at STEM. This is the school for their children, they believe. They're they're really devoted to the school. Another parent told me that the, the school board and the school went out of its way to help her children learn math and not be intimidated. And last night I talked to a mother with a child with autism, and she had felt the school always met his needs when he needed extra support. Before I go, I want to say that I have asked the school and the district to talk about all of this and other things related to this week's attack, but I really haven't gotten a response and perhaps under understandably, considering what they're dealing with this week. STEM's executive director, Penny Euchre, told both the Colorado Sun and CNN that, quote, the safety and well-being of our students and staff is our highest priority. Thank you, Jenny. You're welcome. CPR's Jenny Brundine covers education. The suspects in the STEM school Highlands Ranch shooting are back in court next week when they will hear the criminal charges against them. As we continue to learn new information about what happened, it's already apparent that the attack at STEM is both similar to and very different from earlier shootings. I should note in this discussion, the policy of CPR News is to avoid using the names of shooters, suspected or otherwise, unless it's necessary. I'm joined now by journalist Dave Cullen. He's written books about the Columbine shooting in Colorado and last year's shooting in Parkland, Florida. Dave, welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. And let me thank you for that policy. I'm I'm really pleased to see uh, some organizations adopting that. It's important. The STEM shooting in Parkland, Florida, have some have something in common. In both cases, the suspects are arrested and they are alive. In most other shootings, the suspects were shot by police and they killed them or they killed themselves like in Columbine attack. The status of the suspect in Florida who is awaiting trial has caused a lot of controversy. Some victims have actually said they'd prefer the suspect had died at the school. Why do they say that? 
Well, because by having a perpetrator alive, there are constant news stories for one thing. And, um, you know, I was down there about a month ago in Broward County and people are really upset about that. And, you know, there, there has to be a trial now, all these different motions. Um, they're also really upset about the press coverage and uh, similarly happened in Colorado with the fact that the Rocky Mountain News and the Denver Post ran stories every day for months on end. I actually documented the number in my book. It was every day that summer and um, they just had enough. And I think a lot of people feel like if it, if he were dead, this would be closed. It would be behind us. You know, I say be careful what you look for because with Columbine, it was really the reverse where because there was – there was no one to blame. There was uh, no one to to focus your anger. There was incredible displaced anger, and it led to a lot of problems. And all those people at the time had the opposite sentiment. If only we had these people alive, so we could put them on trial and so forth. So th- there's no good – there's no good scenario. And I just want to clarify, that was after Columbine when the Rocky and the Post were so active. Correct. I'm sorry. Did I – yeah. Yes. And- Thank you. And what is the other side of understanding people's feelings when a suspect is alive? Well, when a suspect is alive, um, God, I don't want to use the word closure because people hate that. But you can get some resolution. You can put them on trial and you can get some sort of satisfaction um, in a way. But the downside is then you have to go through it. I had an interesting uh, situation after Columbine. I was covering all the aftermath of that for the next year, and also covering the Matthew Shepard murder trials in Laramie. He was a gay college student, very celebrated death. Uh, it was going on the same year, and I was traveling back and forth to Laramie. And I, I, I got to know uh, Matthew Shepard's mother, Judy Shepard, very well and, and talked to her about it. And I said, you know, going through these trials, you know, she said going through both murder trials uh, was the hardest thing she'd ever done. It was terrible, but it was also um, – Helpful. Helpful. She actually, especially when she stood up at the sentencing of, of Russell Henderson, the first one, and stood about 10 feet away from him and basically told him off, really laid into him for murdering her son. And um, it was the only time I ever saw her act angry. And she didn't at the second trial, even though he was sort of like the primary uh, driver of it. And I, I talked to her about that. And she said, I didn't need to after the first time. I just needed to do that one time. So there was a – she said it was terrible to go through the trials and yet it it worked a lot of this out for her. And she said she felt really terrible for the Columbine families who had their perpetrators gone and didn't have anywhere to focus their anger. So it's it's very much a double-edged sword. And is this a trend in the school shootings where the suspects are arrested and face the justice system? It could be. Yeah, that's a very open question because we're starting to get more of them when it was very close to zero. You know, I'm always weird, you know, leery of trends um, and trend stories, you know, on a trend of a few. Um, you know, time will tell whether these are just aberrations uh, or whether it is a trend. We don't, it, it could be because these shooters are evolving in many ways, uh, but we don't know yet. Something else unusual with the STEM shooting, when one of the suspects entered the classroom, students actually rushed him. The young man who died, Kendrick Castillo, is credited with helping disarm him and saving some classmates' lives. I can't think of many other cases where that happened except one very recent one at North Carolina College. A lot of students getting to the – are they getting to the point where they feel their only hope is to defend themselves? Yes, I'm wondering about that as a trend too because and, – and I want to mention the names too. Uh, at North Carolina, it was Riley Howell who was 21 and Kendrick um, 
I'm, I'm just amazed that these kids, uh, Brendan Bailey, I, I, I don't know if I'm pronouncing his right, also is one of the people, sorry, choking me up, uh, Thank you for at the STEM school who, who, yes, yes, who um, who also helps him do him and, and lived through it. Um, this is kind of amazing. And, oh, God. You know, if we're at the point now where after 20 years, America has still done nothing about guns, in fact, gone backwards. Uh, you know, we saw at Parkland finally last year, the kids rose up and said, OK, we're, we're, we're done waiting for you, adult America. You have failed us and now we're going to do it ourselves. That was really powerful. If now we're at the point where the kids are throwing their bodies in front of these people and sacrificing their lives to do it <laughs> – Will that shame America into doing something? Uh, you know, I, I love those kids if they're doing it. it. It's kind of amazing. You know, they're taught run, hide, fight, which is – which I, everyone should know. Um, it's very important to do that in that order if you're not familiar. If you if you aren't, Google it immediately today and teach your kids. Uh, there's great videos from Homeland uh, uh, Security Office. Um, but the whole idea is in that order. Run, run, run. Only hide, only take shelter if it's your last resort and if then – you know, if you're cornered or something and only fight really is the last resort because your odds of living through that are extremely low. But the flip side of that is your, your, your odds of fighting a gunman, your odds are probably you're going to die but your odds dramatically go up of other people around you living. And the fact that children are making that choice – to sacrifice their lives. Um, that's extraordinary. But it's it's horrible that we're at that point. You know, there was another kid I'm, I'm sure many of you saw um, on uh, on CNN, I believe, two days ago, an interview with Brooke Baldwin. I think he was 12, talking about how, you know, he thought about it and, you know, he had a, he had a baseball bat ready to try to take the guy on um, if it came to that because he heard the shooting and um, – you know, kids with their bare hands or a baseball bat are much of a match, um, but they can subdue. You know, we saw that on United, the United flight in 9-11, uh, United 93 or whatever it was. But um, I just can't believe we're uh, we're going to we're going to let it go to there so that people can ho- have hobbies with their with their guns collecting them. And I want to thank you again for saying the names of students who have died in these shootings. It's rare in these cases that there are two shooters, although that was the case at Columbine. Mm-hmm. It's still very early in the investigation, so we don't have a lot of details. But does anything else strike you as unusual about this pair? Yes, several things. Um, <clears throat> two of them is very unusual. The FBI calls them dyads. It's a whole class of, of people who have a, a particular psychology that's different than an individual doing it. And and by the way, they, they, we need a lot more study on them. Um, they're, they're famous pairs through history that people recognize, Bonnie and Clyde, Leopold and Loeb, uh, the Washington, D.C. snipers about 30 years ago, uh, obviously uh, the two Columbine shooters. Um, but also in this case, one of them was a female. That's even more rare. It's, I believe it's about 2%. It's extremely low. Um, so there are a few weird things going on. And I don't know if we have the latest information this morning. Uh, I, I find it very, very odd that they uh, apparently did this separately or that they were uh, – because typically when they do it together, they want to enjoy it doing together. In fact, at Columbine, um, one of the boys uh, had a – in the daytime or for the other boy, I don't want to say their names, uh, listed about five things for that morning, you know, including you know 
getting the propane for the bombs and so forth, assembling them. Um, the last item was have fun. And that was, you know, that that went on through the videos they made in their journals, too, is like that was the, the idea of it, enjoying this. And so um, the idea that to, to separate uh, is very, very odd to me. Now, there's a lot of unknowns. Perhaps they were planning to start separately and get together or uh, to be together the whole time. But facts intervened. You know, there's a lot of unknown. So perhaps it didn't go as planned. Um, but there's a lot of weird, unusual things here. There's a lot we're still learning about this whole situation. Dave, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Journalist Dave Cullen is the author of the books Columbine and Parkland, Birth of a Movement. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. A bill allowing sports betting in Colorado cleared the legislature last week just before the session ended. But there are more obstacles before you can bet on the Nuggets winning the NBA championship, and voters will ultimately get the say. Joining us to talk about that is CPR's business reporter, Ben Marcus, who is following the issue. Hi, Ben. Hey, Avery. The last time you were on the show talking about this, you said there was skepticism that a sports gambling bill could make it out of the legislature. But it sailed through. What changed? So the big problem was that you had two distinct interests who were fighting to get a piece of sports gambling. One was the casinos who are bound to mountain towns, and the other was the horse track, which is in Aurora, which is really close to Denver. Uh, And so it became who could get customers. And the casinos didn't want the horse track to get a sports book because then nobody would drive up to the casinos in the mountain towns. Both these interests were really deep pocketed, and the big concern was that they would kind of fight until the bill died. But something happened in the middle of the legislature legislative session that changed everything. The track, the horse track, bought three Colorado casinos. So essentially it was, if you can't beat them, join them kind of mindset. Uh, And the track got assurance that those casinos would get a license. And so they dropped their opposition uh, and the bill really sailed through. So what basically does the legislation do? What will sports gambling look like in Colorado? So existing casinos in Colorado, and there's more than 30 of them, can apply for a license. Uh, They can uh, set up a physical sports book in their casinos, uh, again, bound to these mountain towns, Blackhawk, Central City, Cripple Creek, uh, historic mining towns. Um, And they can build mobile platforms so people can make bets anywhere in Colorado from their phone. Um, There will be no limits on the bet amount. The casinos get to come up with that. Uh, And there will be a 10% tax uh, on all the gambling proceeds, and that'll go to mostly the water plan, which is a series of kind of water conservation projects. Uh, But a little bit will also go to gambling addiction services. And the bill still hasn't been signed by the governor, but he's indicated he supports it. What other obstacles does the bill have? So it has one huge one. So every tax vote in Colorado has to go to a statewide vote to the voters. So in November, voters will vote on the 10% tax on sports gambling. Now, if that doesn't pass in November, the entire sports gambling system that the legislature has set up will be nullified. Uh, Now, sin taxes are popular. They're the only things that have passed statewide tax votes in Colorado. Uh, But nothing is assured. The cigarette 
cigarette tax a few years ago uh, failed, but it had uh, Philip Morris and other cigarette interests behind it. There isn't any opposition that people can think of uh, to the sports gambling and the tax associated with it. Um, the polling I hear has been favorable. Um, and also there's one last vote that will have to happen. The mountain cities where these casinos are located, they're going to have to vote to allow the sports books in those cities. And is there a thought on how that's looking? Are their polling, polling looking good in the mountain cities? So these are kind of interesting places. They're not highly populated. Like I think the population of Blackhawk is in the dozens, not hundreds. And so they have traditionally, this is kind of the big industry in those cities. So I don't think anybody thinks that those mountain town votes will, will be problematic. So they could get some money out of that and that might be helpful in some of those. Is that essentially what you're saying? Yeah, those towns and those counties actually are supported by gambling. Um, and so I think that uh, there's generally a feeling that that is, uh, that is something they would support. How much tax money are we talking here? So the um, the state has tried to come up with this. And it's hard to come up with what you expect a market that has never existed before will be. Uh, but they think about $10 million in the first full year, $11 million, actually. Uh, that equates to more than $100 million a year industry, um, which is pretty big. But some people still believe that that number is actually a bit lower um, than they think. So, And the other thing is, is if people come up to those casinos to do sports gambling, they expect overall gambling revenues to rise. Uh, and this is good for programs that rely on casino revenues, like the State Historic Fund, uh, the counties and the cities where these casinos are located. Uh, and the casinos themselves in those mountain towns have really had a hard time with growing revenue over the last few years. And it's not exactly clear why, because Denver's economy is doing really well. Uh, so it's not clear why casinos are kind of moving sideways. And so I think they're really hoping that these sports books can add a little bit of juice to what is been a pretty slow revenue growth uh, for those casinos in Colorado. Ben, thank you. Thank you for having me. CPR business reporter Ben Marcus talking with us about what's next with sports betting in Colorado. May 11, 1969 marks the 50th anniversary of the so-called Mother's Day fire at the Rocky Flats plant near Boulder. It's a fire that had the potential to devastate the Denver metro area and Front Range. In its heyday, the plant employed more than 3,000 workers who made plutonium triggers for U.S. nuclear weapons, part of the arms race with the Soviet Union. Lynn Ackland wrote a 1999 book on Rocky Flats and the fire. Welcome, Lynn. Thank you. First off, can you describe what Rocky Flats was like in 1969? I drive past it now, and it's all prairie. Part of it's open to the public as a wildlife refuge. What did it look like back then? In 1969, Rocky Flats was a small community. There were 800 buildings, including several big warehouse-sized chemical processing and manufacturing buildings, um, and Rocky Flats had its own fire department, infirmary, cafeterias. And at that point in 69, there were 3,200 workers there. The plant was one of the most important in the U.S. nuclear weapons manufacturing process. Indeed, in, in that year, it was the only plant in the country making plutonium bombs. And the plutonium bombs are used to detonate or trigger thermonuclear bombs. And that's where that euphemism came that Rocky Flats manufactured nuclear triggers, which really is 
kind of a denial of the fact that it made plutonium bombs, which were the successor to the bomb that destroyed Nagasaki in 1945. I want to talk about the Mother's Day fire in 1969. It was a Sunday. There weren't a lot of people around. How did the fire start? Right. Well, one of the interesting aspects of plutonium is that plutonium is dangerous on micro levels, meaning that if someone inhales particles of plutonium, atoms of plutonium, or plutonium enters the body through cuts, they are at risk of getting cancer. About seven pounds of plutonium which were shaped, you know, the plutonium was shaped into hollow shells. When detonated, the chain reaction of that seven pounds creates an explosion, the equivalent of some 20,000 tons of TNT. So plutonium was very hard to work on. And the other aspect of plutonium is that it is pyrophoric in some forms, meaning that it spontaneously ignites in the presence of oxygen. So on Mother's Day, 1969, plant was you know, temporarily shut down. Typically, it ran three shifts of, of work, and the you know, operations had pretty much stopped in that big building. This is a building that took up the space of about two football fields. And inside the building, because the workers had to be protected from the plutonium particles, there were stainless steel crates that were welded end-to-end and stacked. And the workers put their arms through leaded gloves in order to work on the plutonium that was inside. So on that day, on Mother's Day, the building had had really become a fire trap as the secret documents that were most of them not declassified until the 1990s, you know, showed that in order to try to protect workers from neutron irradiation, the company Dow Chemical had installed – 500-some tons of plastic shielding. Well, the plastic shielding was flammable. So on this day, Mother's Day, there was a rag, oily rags, inside a glove box, and the plutonium, uh, it was flecked with plutonium. The rags were flecked with plutonium, and they spontaneously caught fire. And plutonium burns like a charcoal briquette. But after a couple of hours of burning, it's, the fire started in the morning, and there weren't any workers around. The, uh, the company had refused to pay for extra monitors, as the union had wanted. And the fire started burning and ignited the plexiglass windows and the other plastic shielding. And pretty soon, the fire was being pulled through the glove box system by big fans. And I can tell you in a moment about the sort of the dumb luck that uh, kept the fire from uh, from expanding. Yeah, I want to hear about that. And also tell me what happened when the firefighters showed up, because I understand they had some critical decisions to make because fire started with plutonium might 
burn differently compared to other fires. Right. One of the risks with plutonium fires, and there were hundreds of fires at Rocky Flats, small fires, you know, all the time. In fact, one of the documents called the fires routine. And a concern about plutonium fires is that water, when it reacts to plutonium, can cause a criticality or a um, kind of a localized chain reaction that can irradiate and you know, kill uh, anyone within fairly close proximity. So there was a standard procedure that you were not supposed to use water on plutonium fires. However, in 1957, when there, the first big fire broke out at Rocky Flats, water was used because there was no alternative. And indeed, in 1969, the same decision was made by a firefighter captain who decided that, you know, it was either use water on the fire or the building was, you know, going to, um, the roof would collapse and Denver would be uh, contaminated, the, the whole Denver area. So water was used, but that was only one of the, the bits of, of luck that occurred. The first bit of luck was that when the workers shut down the previous shift, one of them had left a metal plate blocking off the glove box going into part of the building that was only single story and could have, uh, you know, the fire could have gone through the roof fairly quickly on that. The second piece of luck was that the fire was being pulled by ventilation fans that were typically used to pull the you know, contaminated air into a filter system. Well, the fire was being pulled into the filter system, which was paper filters and was you know, burning, starting to burn the filters. And one of the firemen accidentally backed his truck into a power pole which shut off the electricity to the fans. And that is one of the major reasons that the fire didn't go through the roof. It was very close. But of course, the, the full risk of the fire was, was not known by the public because this is a top secret operation. The Atomic Energy Commission and Dow Chemical essentially hid information about the cause of the fire and the risk involved. But I will say, and one thing that's important to know, is that a year later in 1970, a top Atomic Energy Commission official testified before Congress that if the fire had been a little bigger, hundreds of square miles would have been contaminated. And let me quote him saying this, the hundreds of square miles could be involved in radiation exposure and involve cleanup at an astronomical cost as well as creating a very intense reaction by the general public exposed to this. In other words, if the fire had been a little bigger, we could have a situation in Denver like the situation that currently exists around Chernobyl caused by a reactor accident in 1986, so 17 years after the Mother's Day fire. The difference is that the Chernobyl accident did get out of control and was not contained. And in Denver, the accident, the, the big consequences of the accident didn't happen. So, you know, most of the public is not even aware, I'm sure, that, uh, you know, Mother's Day 
1969 was the day we almost lost Denver. Wow, so it had the potential to be so much bigger than it was. Yes. I, I gather this this event served as a turning point for workers. <laughs> it, it actually served as a turning point more for the public. I mean, the workers already had known that they were, especially in the plutonium area, that they were being exposed to radiation, indeed rocky flats, for you know several years leading up to the 69 fire, experienced the highest number of irradiated workers uh, anywhere in the whole United States nuclear weapons complex. The reason being that the priority, the only real priority at uh, Rocky Flats was to build nuclear bombs. And the managers uh, sacrificed worker safety and environmental safety in order to increase production and oftentimes to increase it more cheaply. I found records that showed, uh, you know, these were classified uh, at the time, that showed managers understanding the radiation, but saying, no, we can't go back. It would be too expensive to make changes in the production system. And when you say irradiated workers, you're talking about people who have unsafe exposure to radiation. Right. You know, people who um, indeed will suffer from, from cancer because of the radiation. I mean, that was only one of the problems at Rocky Flats, of course. There's also chronic beryllium disease, Dozens and dozens of, of workers have died from that. Um, it's like black lung disease from a different part that was machined for the plutonium bomb. What's the legacy of Rocky Flats? Today, the historic plant is invisible. There are hiking trails on open prairie. You live in Boulder, and I wonder what you think of every time you drive past the site. Well, what I think of every time I pass the site is the major legacy of Rocky Flats is that virtually every nuclear weapon in the U.S. complex contains a plutonium bomb that was manufactured at Rocky Flats. So the legacy of Rocky Flats is that the nuclear weapons of mass destruction that were manufactured there are still part of the U.S. nuclear arsenal and nuclear weapons still are the greatest short-term threat to life on Earth. Currently, there are about 14,000 nuclear weapons in the hands of nine countries. Uh, more than 90% of those nuclear weapons are held by the United States and Russia. So that is, you know, the main legacy I think of. But there are also the other legacies are contaminated workers, an environment that you know, there's still a lot of uncertainty about the plutonium um, that is in the soil. You know, this, the cleanup, the $7 billion cleanup, which was much cheaper than the estimate, you know, only cleaned up in the plutonium production areas down to about three feet. So you still have plutonium in the soil. And the other legacy, I think, is there's still, you know, a lot of tension between former workers and anti-nuclear activists, you know, concerned about uh, the community. And those disputes will probably continue, you know, as long as people remember Rocky Flats. Lynn, thank you so much for this conversation. You're welcome. 
That was Lynn Ackland, former CU journalism professor. The building that caught fire contained three tons of plutonium, enough for 1,000 nuclear bombs. Ackland wrote about it in his book, Making a Real Killing, Rocky Flats and the Nuclear West. More and more drivers on the western slope are seeing something unsettling on the side of the road. It prompted a question to Colorado Wonders. Here's CPR's Max Wysick Newsfellow, Haley Sanchez, with the answer. Tammy Johnson drives all over the western slope for her job. But there's something unusual about a stretch of Highway 550 between her home in Montrose and Ridgeway. When people hit a, a deer or an elk, um, usually they move it off of the side of the road just to the shoulder. Um, typically before, I, there would be a deer and then the next day it would, it would be gone. But now I feel like there's, they're always there. Johnson says some have been there so long, they're bleached from the sun. She keeps a tally as she drives and counted 20 on her way to work in just one day. It seems in, in the past that CDOT road crews would clean up roadkill from the sides of the roads. And I was wondering if there was a policy change or, or what happened. It's not a policy change, but officials say there is a lot more roadkill this year. Jeff Peterson is a wildlife program manager with the Colorado Department of Transportation. He says some staff members are supposed to remove dead animals if they see them or if somebody calls them in. We have 230 maintenance crews throughout the state. And it's part of their job to pick up any roadkill that they find um, next to the road, particularly if it's causing a a hazard for traffic. Roadkill happens a lot in Colorado. In 2018, CDOT staff reported at least 4,000 crashes. And CDOT even has that stretch of highway Johnson drives marked as a hotspot for incidents. They do try to keep this from happening, though. It isn't good for wildlife or drivers. They've installed miles and miles of wildlife fencing, leading animals to safer road crossings. Some of the most noticeable are the underpasses and overpasses. And you may have seen these man-made dirt ramps leading away from the highway. They're called escape ramps. But what happens are any trapped animals can jump off of these ramps um, out of the right-of-way, but it's too tall to jump back onto the right-of-way, so they're sort of one-way ramps. And they put extra lighting and signs in places where fencing and crossings won't work. We will put in some flashing lights uh, just to alert to drivers that they that it is an issue and they need to pay attention to those signs. These are all things CDOT has set up in areas where they know wildlife will be. Peterson says those efforts together have reduced animal vehicle collisions by as much as 90 percent. Now, we had another question about roadkill for Colorado Wonders from Christian Steinbrecher, who's from Oregon and drove to Colorado for a ski trip. He wondered if reduced speed limits would help. Peterson says CDOT has tried that and it didn't work. Most crashes happen during migration in the fall and springtime, usually at dawn and dusk. So far this year, CDOT crews have reported 1,200 animals killed. In a handful of cases, people die in these crashes. And there's a lot of damage to vehicles, too. The Rocky Mountain Insurance Industry Association says insurance companies pay out $1.1 billion each year for crashes like this. Kevin Blecka is a terrestrial biologist for Colorado Parks and Wildlife. He says there's definitely been more roadkills this year, especially on Highway 50 near Gunnison. And that's for a couple of reasons. For one, there's been more traffic on that stretch of highway. And the second reason is we've had a snowy winter, and so the deep snows have pushed the deer down into the last remaining food sources in the lower elevations that the highway happens to run through. The third reason is there's been a boom in deer fawns this year. 
Some people, like Matt Kinney of Durango, actually like roadkill. He says a single roadside animal can provide a year's worth of meat. Most people, when they see a, a killed animal by a car, it's already been a while since it's been killed and it's decomposed and it's smelling. And, you know, that's not what's involved here. It's only very fresh roadkill. Kinney started doing this because he didn't grow up hunting. So when he moved to Colorado and started, he realized he wouldn't know how to field dress his kill. So I thought, what better way than to learn on roadkill? Then I realized, wow, this is a really good source of meat when I don't get one hunting also. Roadkill scavengers must get a permit from the state to legally take the animal. But this hobby isn't for everyone, including Tammy Johnson, the woman who submitted her question. It's not that she's grossed out. I don't eat um, any kind of wild meat, and so um, I, it's just not something I would consider doing. But she says if she were ever to hit a deer, she would definitely call it in, now that she knows that may be the only way Cruz would know to pick it up. I'm Haley Sanchez, CPR News. Is there something you're curious about? Submit your question to CPR's Colorado Wonders at CPR.org. When we come back, a break from an intense news week with some inspiration for graduates and some students hitting all the right notes. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Sam Brash, host of Purplish. It's a show about Colorado's democracy from member-supported CPR News. Big questions about state government, answers from CPR reporters, experts, and voters. I want to know what my fellow Coloradans think about things. I was a little surprised to hear him say he doesn't want to use kill committees. It's just a unanimous feeling around the table. Why can't this get fixed? Subscribe to Purplish wherever you get your podcasts. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. With graduation season underway, we're highlighting commencement speeches across the state. It was a snowy one yesterday at CU Boulder where Savannah Sellers, a correspondent for NBC News, began her commencement speech with a request. What is up, class of 2019? Okay, welcome to the blizzard that is your commencement. I beg of you, don't go for the head if snowballs are coming up here. Sellers is a recent graduate of CU's journalism school, and as a commencement speaker on the younger side, she admits she only has so much to draw from. It's true. Your senior class president, as well as the senior class council, invited a 27-year-old here today to share with you the wisdom of the ages. Well, the truth is, I cannot give you the wisdom of all ages, but I can give you the wisdom of our ages— Just about everyone tries to convince the graduates that they should chase their dreams no matter what. And I agree with that, and you should. But just to be clear, chasing your dreams is often going to feel like a nightmare. But the thing is, when things are feeling hopeless, those aren't signs you're on the wrong path. They're signs you're on the right path. If you're dreaming big enough, chasing your dream is going to be hard. It means your journey is going to have a lot of missteps and dead ends. It will be scary and make you question if it's possible and induce meltdowns. And sometimes it might even make you wish you wanted something else for your life. And what do you do when it seems like achieving your dream is impossible? Sellers has five tips for that. Tip number one, when the imposter syndrome knocks on your door, punch it in the face. Imposter syndrome is the inner voice that says you shouldn't be here. You can't do it. You aren't good enough. You aren't old enough. You're not smart enough or experienced enough. I want you to enter the world knowing that your age and whatever else is unique about you can be your superpower. 
When you doubt that, that's the imposter syndrome. Don't ever let it stop you. Don't ever trust what it's telling you. All right, tip number two, find a corporate side hustle. Look, the only reason I have my job is because in my previous jobs at the same company, I found ways to chase my dream of being a reporter in my spare time. If you work at a place where you can see what you want to be, you can spend your time working towards that and create opportunities you didn't think you had. Tip number three, when your dream is feeling like a nightmare, you're going to need some help. You need the good people you got in your life. Your friends, you're probably sitting next to them right now, and your family. It's the friendships in your life that make chasing your dreams sustainable. They make the nightmare moments bearable. Okay, tip number four, we're getting close to the end. When you can find meaning in the work you're doing, your dreams will shift in ways you didn't anticipate. You will love your job and your life more when you get to a place where you're proud of the difference it's making in the world. We're not all gonna run a charity or perform brain surgery, but we can all do good in the career path meant for us. All right, this is my last tip and it might be the most important. Remember when you wanted what you have right now. There's nothing like pursuing your dreams to make you forget how much you've achieved along the way. And there's always going to be the next thing that you're gonna think and pray about and say, as soon as I have that, that's when I'll be happy. We're always challenging ourselves for an encore. And to an extent, that's good and motivating and ambitious. But every now and then, you've got to tap the brakes and enjoy the present. And remember when what you've got is all you thought you could ever want. That can start today by remembering when all you ever wanted was no more homework and no more finals. And you did it! That's NBC News. Savannah Sellers giving the spring 2019 commencement speech at CU Boulder. And we'll continue to highlight other schools next week. Finally today, the jazz band from the Denver School of the Arts is in New York City to compete in front of jazz legends. Before the band flew east, CPR's Natalia Navarro dropped in on one of their rehearsals. Band director Dave Hammond has been teaching jazz to young musicians for more than two decades. Bands at the Denver School of the Arts have qualified for the essentially Ellington competition three times before, but Hammond says the students this year are improvising at a professional level. Whenever I hear the band, I'm often thinking to myself, oh my gosh, these guys don't sound like high school students. The competition is named for Duke Ellington, one of the most influential American jazz composers. It's run by Wynton Marsalis, another jazz legend. Many of the 20 students in the band came to the school as middle schoolers and have been studying their instruments for years. Hammond says he hopes, win or lose, this competition will mark the culmination of their hard work and dedication to jazz. Uh, My name is Jack Bendur. I play the trombone, and I've been playing it for five years. What do you like about playing jazz? Every little thing. It's the history, and that's what I like to think about when I'm listening to jazz and playing jazz. Everybody that's done it in the past has led up to us doing it at this moment in time, and in the future, we'll just be another one of those people. Hammond says the roots of jazz are as important to teach as its sound. I think it's lost on many kids what the African-American experience here in the United States has to offer all of us when we think about general oppression of a people, and then the loosening of that oppression and seeing a people rise. And that's what Duke Ellington's music is all about. 
Winners will be announced Saturday. If the Denver band is among them, they'll get to have dinner with some of their idols, members of the Lincoln Center Jazz Performers. The students will play three songs, including this Duke Ellington piece called Solid Old Man from the 1940s. I'm Natalia Navarro, CPR News. And that's Colorado Matters. Thank you for joining us. I'm Avery Lill. This is CPR News.